We are well into the Christmas season, and it's been wonderful to celebrate Jesus coming in different ways, to worship here this morning, to be at uh, some language ministry banquets, and different ministries are, are celebrating what God has done in their lives this last season, celebrating the coming of, of Jesus, of course. That's at the center of all of our celebration. I thought that we had a long Christmas season at Willingdon. You know, we start at the end of November with a women's Christmas tea and go all the way to the Russian language. Um, Christmas celebration in January. I thought that was long. I was at the Filipino banquet on Friday. It starts in September in the Philippines. They start singing Christmas carols in September. goes all the way through January. So we don't even come close. Bless the Filipinos. They know how to celebrate. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're starting our Christmas series, Choices. Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Did uh, any of you watch the the funeral of former President George H.W. Bush this week? Maybe you saw it live or saw some news coverage of that funeral. I thought it was extraordinary. Uh, George H.W. Bush, he passed away at the age of 94. He was born into privilege, into a, a wealthy family in Connecticut. His father, Prescott Bush, was a wealthy banker, a U.S. senator. What people remembered about George H.W. Bush at his funeral was that he made some really significant choices during his life. For example, at age 18, he was entering Yale University in Connecticut, and uh, it was World War II. At age 18, he decided to, you know, leave his studies at, at Yale and join the U.S. Navy. His father and the professor said, no, don't do this, but he chose to join the Navy. He chose to serve his country. A few years later, at age 20, his plane was shot down, and uh, an American submarine rescued him. Later on in life, he saw that as God's grace to him. But why did he make these choices? Why would he have not taken the easier route, just remained in Connecticut, studied at Yale? Later he did. Well, he said that his mother encouraged him to serve others, that his mother told him every day to not, you know, make a great uh, deal of where he had come from, but that he should have a mind toward serving other people. The motto of his school Phillips Academy was not for self. You don't live for yourself. And so he felt that from an early age, he had to give back. He had to give back from what he had received. Later on in life, he saw that rescue by an American submarine to truly be God's grace on his life. Came back from the war, went to Yale University, and then went off to Texas and uh, engaged in the oil industry. And then after some successful business ventures... He chose to serve his country, became a member of Congress, then CIA director, ambassador to the UN. Eventually, he became vice president alongside President Ronald Reagan, became president. And then even after his presidency, he continued to serve people around the world. He believed he had something to give back. One day, a reporter asked him, "Uh, President Bush, do you believe that you have established a dynasty (laughs) And he was actually quite irritated by the question. He said, there are two words that I have a particular disdain for, dynasty and legacy. He said, I'm actually not thinking about my legacy. I'm thinking about seeing my grandchildren serve others. Isn't that a beautiful testimony? 
From one's perspective, you might look at his life and say, well, he was born into privilege right from day one. You know, he was graced by the sovereignty of God. But then when you look at it from another perspective, you see that he made some really significant choices throughout his life. And no matter where we come from, we all live under God's sovereignty. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're remembering that God is all-powerful, that he has his hand over all of history, he has a comprehensive plan, and that he is able to accomplish his purposes and keep his promises. God's sovereignty. We live under God's sovereignty, and we also make intentional decisions along the way. So, It appears a bit paradoxical, right? Sovereignty and human responsibility, but they're not contradictory. They're woven together in Scripture, and we need to understand here this morning that God is sovereign over each one of our lives, that he is sovereign over the story of this church, over the story of the world, and along the way, God invites us to make decisions in alignment with his plan. Today, we're going to look at the story of a person that was born into uh, royal lineage, And then we're also going to look at the the story of a social outcast, a person who chose to enter that royal story. How did that happen? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew 1, verse 1, the first book of the New Testament. Before we read it, let's pray. So, Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things and over this moment. And we thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus for our salvation. And Jesus, we thank you that you called Matthew to follow you when you were here on earth. And we thank you that by your spirit you inspired Matthew to write this gospel. You taught him. And we ask that you teach us this morning by your spirit that we'd understand your word and that we'd know how to apply it to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why would Matthew start his gospel with the genealogy? Well, we need to remember that Matthew, his primary audience, the people that he's writing to, they are Jewish Christians. They've just come to faith in Jesus. And many of them now are marginalized. They find themselves outside of the synagogues, outside of their Jewish community. They're now outcasts. They need to understand how Jesus ties into their story. They have the Old Testament as their foundation. So they follow Jesus now. How does that tie into the story that God has been writing through the people of Israel? Well, Matthew is going to answer that question. The genealogy of God's grand story communicates three things. First of all, the true identity of Jesus, the Messiah. As son of David, he is the heir of Israel's greatest king, David. So he's of royal descent. At the end of Matthew, he'll be called the king of the Jews. And truly, he is king, king of kings, lord of lords. He's the son of Abraham. Abraham, the father of the nation. As son of Abraham, he is the one that will fulfill the promises made to Abraham. Abraham was the first one to receive promises about the future of the nation of Israel, the, the nation that would come from Abraham's seed. This blessing that would be not just for Israel, but for all peoples across the earth. So, 
the message is that Jesus will be for all the nations and that God will fulfill his promises to Abraham and to David through Jesus. One more thing. Matthew begins with two words in the original, book and genealogy. The only other place in Scripture where those two words are found is Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And in Genesis chapter 2, the story of the creation of humanity is being told, the creation of Adam and Eve. So Matthew is signaling to his readers, hey, there's a new creation in Jesus. With Jesus, a whole new era is being inaugurated in human history. Take note. So this first section of the book, it lays the foundation. It provides the identity of Jesus, the calling of Jesus. And why is identity so important? Some of you may remember Alex Haley's work. He uh, sought to discover uh, his origins. So he was of black ancestry, and he made this diligent search to discover where he had come from. It's in his classic work, Roots. Became a TV series. That work by Alex Haley has inspired many people to research their family history. Ancestry.com has about 3 million subscribers. Why is it important? I know something about my own genealogy. I can trace my uh, genealogy on my mother's side back to the 17th century. And so if you look at it, you see this weaving of uh, Frisian and Flemish streams. Those are European tribes. <laughs> and you see that the family moved from the Netherlands to Poland and then to Ukraine and to Canada. If I look at my genealogy, I understand something about my at least biological identity, something about the family that I belong to. I get a window into the history of my family. That's true for me. It's true for everyone here. I remember visiting a European country with a friend and we were sitting around the table, and uh, the, the hostess, the, 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 the woman uh, that had invited us to come, she was talking to my friend, and she looked at his surname. When she discovered his surname, she said, oh, you're of royal lineage. And he said, yeah, I am. And then she looked at me, and she said, what's your surname? So I told her, and she asked, were your ancestors peasants? I found a gracious way to respond to that question. But you know what? No matter where we come from, whether we be nobility or proletariat, rich or poor, we're invited by God to enter a much grander story that truly grounds us in things that are foundational, that are important. Identity. Some of us may find the reading in this genealogy today a bit tedious, a bit uninspiring. You know what? Throughout history, genealogies have been really important to people around the world. Here in North America, it's hard to remember the names of our great-grandparents. Do you know the names of your great-grandparents? We don't remember our genealogies, unfortunately. And that's one of the reasons why we suffer a real crisis in our day. According to some really extensive research that's been done by the Fuller Youth Institute, the burning questions of youth today are these. Number one, who am I? That's a question of identity. Number two, where do I fit in? That's a question of belonging. Number three, what difference do I make? 
That's a question about meaning and purpose. These have been burning questions throughout history, and they are the very acute needs, questions of the youth of our day, especially for those between the ages of 12 and 30. And if we don't have answers to those questions about identity and belonging and where we're going, there's an emptiness in our souls. The questions keep us awake at night. We don't know why we're here. We don't know where we belong. We don't know where we're going. Questions are true for every stage of life, but especially for the young in this complex, diverse, competitive world. So we need to read the genealogy. Let's read it with excitement. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab. I've been practicing that name for weeks. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Selman, and Selman, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. All of those names are names that we would find in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. They follow a normal pattern, names that we would expect to find, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. What surprises you in that genealogy? Well, what should surprise us is the inclusion of four women, not usually included in Jewish genealogies. Nor are these women that are included among the illustrious, the the famous patriarchs of Israelite history. You would expect women like Sarah. Uh, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Instead, we find names like Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, Ruth. Why these four? All four, as you read through the Old Testament, you find that in certain periods of their lives, they, they did things that were morally questionable. For example, Tamar, she seduced her father-in-law. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. Ruth, she pursued Boaz in a fairly unusual way. Bathsheba, she was the wife of Uriah before her relationship with David. So why these four? How do we explain their presence in the genealogy of Jesus? Well, first, all four women are foreigners like us. Rahab and Tamar, Canaanites. Ruth, a Moabite. Bathsheba, the wife of a Hittite. Their inclusion in the genealogy of Jesus foreshadows the inclusion of foreigners like us. That's good news. And second, despite the stigma that was attached to their past, they become these unusual instruments of God's grace in the story that God is writing. God, who is sovereign over all things, can use very unlikely people just like us. That's good news. Gospels for all people, especially for sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the message is, That Jesus has come for all people, for you, for me, and God has a plan and a purpose 
for us. How do we enter the story? The genealogy of God's grand story communicates at least three things. One, the true identity of Jesus, the Messiah. And two, a sense of belonging for foreigners and sinners like us. What's the third thing? Well, let's continue reading. Verse 6, second part of the verse. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. You should be clapping because I managed to read that. (laughs) Oh, thanks. No. (laughs) What's the point in that section? The main point is that Jesus is of royal heritage Everyone listed there, every male, was a king. Jesus will be called the king of the Jews at the end of Matthew. Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. We're going to sing about that at the Christmas special. Now, where does the genealogy reach its climax? Let's keep reading. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Now you're probably looking for a name for your son. Here's a good, good option. There's actually a whole list here that you can choose from. Shealtiel. What's your name? Shealtiel. Imagine naming your son Shealtiel. Throughout life, your child would be asking, why did my parents give me this name? The name actually means this. I asked God for a child. It has a beautiful meaning. I asked God for a child And by God's grace, I was given this son. It's beautiful. Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eliezer. And Eliezer, the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Where's the climax? Well, obviously, verse 16. Verse 16, Jesus is called the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. All the previous generations lead to Jesus. And with him, the pattern is broken. Did you notice that? Did you notice what was written? Verse 16, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Jesus is the son of a woman whose husband was Joseph. Jesus' origins are extraordinary. In the next episode, we'll discover that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' ultimate identity doesn't come from Joseph, doesn't come from Mary, actually comes from God himself. 
And that has powerful meaning for us as well. Our true identity should not be in our biological family, our tribal identity. That's not where our true identity should come from as disciples of Jesus. Our identity is to come from God himself. We'll look at that a bit more in a minute. Verse 17 ends the genealogy. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What is Matthew saying? Three groups of 14 generations. Three in scripture quite often symbolizes completeness, perfection. 14 equals two times seven. Seven as well is often a number used for completeness, perfection. So the numbers symbolize something. You will have noticed, of course, that David was the 14th name in the genealogy and that his name, David, in Hebrew, the letters add up to 14. You caught all of that, right, when I read through the genealogy? What does it mean? Whatever it all means, we can be certain of this. What Matthew is communicating is that God is moving history toward a defined goal, that God has a carefully structured plan, that Jesus' birth is not just random. It happens under God's sovereignty in his perfect timing for the accomplishment of his purposes, or as Paul would say it in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then one more note regarding the genealogy. Did you notice that the last group of 14 began with the deportation to Babylon? Why would that be important? That was one of the most painful moments in Israel's history. That was, for them, just a major disruption in their story. I believe what Matthew is communicating is that God is sovereign even over the painful moments in our story, even though over those moments that, at least from our perspective, are disruptions, when things don't be, appear to be going as we would want them to. Could it be that God is sovereign over your moment right now when the unexpected has happened and what happens right now appears to be just a disruption? It is, from your perspective in this moment, meaningless. Could it be that God in his sovereignty is at work, shaping you, molding you? The genealogy of God's grand story communicates at least three things. First of all, the true identity of Jesus, the Messiah. Secondly, a sense of belonging for foreigners and sinners like us. And thirdly, the truth of God's sovereign hand over the entire story. Now, going back to the second point, the genealogy gives us a sense of belonging as foreigners and sinners. I think it would be interesting to look at the stories of one of the women in the genealogy. As I said, there were four. Uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. None of them were of royal heritage, of royal lineage. Let's look at Rahab. It's found in Joshua chapter 2 and 6. Just a bit of background to the story. People of Israel, they have come out of Egypt. 
They've gone through a long wilderness journey. They're about to enter the promised land, Canaan. God says to Joshua, their leader, multiple times, be strong and courageous. Joshua sends two Hebrew spies into the walled city of Jericho to search out the land. They are housed within the home of Rahab. Rahab's home is in the city wall. What should we imagine? Well, archaeological excavations have revealed that there was an inner wall to Jericho and an outer wall, about three to four meters apart. Rubble was thrown between the walls to strengthen the fortress, and then timber beams were laid down between the walls. And on these beams, storage rooms were built, homes were built. Rahab had her home in the wall. It was probably a way station, maybe an inn. The text in Joshua is very clear, and the New Testament affirms this as well, that she was a prostitute. Maybe her home was a good place to get information about the city of Jericho. We don't know. When the king of Jericho gets wind of the presence of these Hebrew spies, he immediately dispatches two royal agents to investigate. The royal agents get to Rahab's home. She has already uh, received news of their coming, and so she has asked the Hebrew spies to hide themselves on the roof under stalks of flax. When the royal agents come in, they ask for the whereabouts of these Hebrew spies, and she says, no, they're already gone. They left the city, and so they leave the city in hot pursuit of the spies. Before the spies go to sleep at night up on the roof, Rahab comes to them and she says this, Joshua chapter 2 verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og and whom you, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. She had received knowledge of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. She had received knowledge of the victory of the Israelites over the Amorite kings. And based on that knowledge, she made a decision. Theologians call this prevenient grace. You you make a decision based on God's grace in your life. Something enables you to make a decision. So she'd received this knowledge. And based on that knowledge, she made a decision. The grafting into the grand story of God requires that we do three things. First of all, acknowledge the God of heaven and earth. Acknowledge the God of heaven and earth. Rahab, based on the information that she's received, she acknowledges the God of Israel to be the God of heaven and earth. She chooses to deposit all of her trust in the God of Israel, Yahweh. She risks everything. Imagine her situation in that city with everyone else thinking in a different direction, committed to other gods, other idols, she makes a choice based on the information received. Listen to her. Again, chapter 2, verse 11 of Joshua. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, 
please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, she abandons her idols, her gods, the Baals, the Asherah of Canaan, and she chooses to exercise faith in the God of Israel. She affirms that Israel's God actually is sovereign over all things, that he rules heaven and earth. Everyone in Jericho, according to Rahab, everyone had received the same news. Everyone had heard that Israel had been delivered from Egypt. Everyone knew that they had received victory over the Amorite kings. Rahab was the only one to act on that knowledge. She was the only one who acted on that knowledge, and in doing that, she fulfilled the second requirement of being grafted into God's story. The grafting into the grand story of God requires three things. First, that we acknowledge God as God of heaven and earth. And then secondly, that we choose to exercise active faith in God. She not only spoke out her faith, she acted on it. The Hebrew men, they instruct her to throw a scarlet cord out of her window so that when the Israelites come to attack Jericho, they'll recognize her home. She's to invite her whole extended family into her house, and she does exactly that. Hebrews, when it lists the story of people of faith, we find Rahab in the list. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab, based on the knowledge that she has received, she decides to change her life She decides to change her belief system. She decides to entrust herself completely to the God of Israel, Yahweh. And she is the first Canaanite to convert to faith in Israel's God. We all need to make a decision. Returning to the story of President George H.W. Bush, he was born into an Episcopalian family. That's the American version of the Anglican church. So born into this family. But there was a time in his journey when he made a choice to have an evangelical faith. He became very good friends with Billy Graham. They would read the scriptures together. They would pray together. He made a choice. So you can look at George H.W. Bush's life and say, well, oh, he's just blessed from the beginning. But along the way, he himself had to make choices. We all do. When the walls of Jericho fell, Rahab was ready. Her family was in her house. And Joshua commanded that the men save her family. And then after that day, after the defeat of Jericho, she became a part of the people of God, the people of Israel. 
she became the mother of Boaz. Boaz married Ruth. Just imagine the change in her life. She was a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho, and now she's the mother of Boaz, and she's in the genealogy of Jesus. Isn't that an amazing story? A story of God's grace? Shouldn't that encourage us? That each one of us, no matter where we come from, no matter what we've done in the past, God makes the invitation to us to join him in his story. The grafting into the grand story of God requires three things. That we acknowledge the God of heaven and earth. That we exercise faith, active faith in God. And that we choose to identify with the people of God. God's writing a grand story to this day. He invites us to acknowledge him. To recognize him as God of heaven and earth. He invites us to choose to place our faith in him. To know him. And he invites us to identify with his people. And you might ask, well, what's the gift? What's the gift that we receive if we enter this grand story of God? Well, the gift of being included in the grand story of God, it provides you with three things. First of all, direction and meaning, a purpose. These questions about our origins, about the meaning of our lives, need answers. There's a wonderful little book written by James Emery White. It's called The Rise of the Nuns. Not nuns as an N-U-S, but N-O-N-E-S. The Rise of the Nuns. And he talks about the increase of those in our society in North America that are not affiliated with any kind of religion at all. The Rise of the Nuns. And he says that the most pressing questions of the young generation in our day, which is now being called Generation Z, the most pressing questions have to do with significance and meaning. People don't know who they are, where they belong. They don't understand where history is going. They don't have a sense of purpose. And if you don't have answers to those fundamental questions, as I said before, there's an emptiness in your soul that keeps you awake at night. And the world around us actually doesn't offer that many answers. (laughs) Essentially, there are three. One, we're just here by chance. That's the naturalist contention. That's the evolutionary perspective. We're just here by chance. The second is that this life is just an illusion. It's actually not real. And some religions will teach you that. And the third is that we are the very creation of God, breathed into being by God himself. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then Every individual life is filled with meaning. Each life is filled with God himself. God, we're breathed by God. The God of heaven and earth has created us. That has massive implications. If you're a follower of Jesus, then God stands over all of history. And he has your life in his hands as well. There's a reason for you to be here. He's accomplishing his purposes. You're gifted with purpose. 
Some years ago, I participated in a seminar called Discovering Your Personal Calling. And we did a number of exercises. One of the exercises was to just ask the question, uh, which scripture verses have spoken to you in a profound way? And so each one of us listed, you know, scripture passages that had marked our lives. Another question had to do with the happy moments in life. You know, when were you really feeling like life was meaningful, purposeful? So we listed those. And then we also were asked to list the really difficult moments when we were struggling. So we all had those difficult moments. One of the things that I saw, like I had never seen before, was that the big life learnings, life lessons, came out of the difficult moments. The things that I had to share with other people, the things around which I had deep convictions, they came out of the really difficult moments in life, the moments when I struggled. And another thing that I had never seen before, I'd been a Christian for about 15 years already, I had never seen before that God was actually very much at work in my life long before I ever thought about him. Long before I decided to follow Jesus, God was already shaping me from birth, shaping me, forming me for his purposes. True for me, true for you, true for each one of us. God is sovereignly at work in our lives. He's shaping us for his purposes. And each one of us can become surprising channels of grace, instruments in God's hands. God was able to use Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, that should encourage us. So the gift of being included in the grand story is that it provides you with an identity grounded in your relationship with God. It provides you with an identity that is sure. It's grounded in God himself, your relationship with him. Not what you were, what you've done, the family that you were born into. No, it's grounded in God. He's writing the grand story. He created you. He gives you an identity. He calls you to himself. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're an heir through God. You are a full son, a full daughter. If you acknowledge God, act on the knowledge that you have received. If you receive Jesus, his son, as your savior, as, our, as your Lord, then all the divine promises made to Abraham and to David are for you. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're provided with belonging in the family of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. You can cry, Abba, Father. The God of heaven and earth is your Father. He has a sovereign hand on your life. And he invites you to follow his son, Jesus. Jesus called some unusual people to follow him when he was here on earth. He uh, called a man named Matthew, the Matthew that wrote this gospel. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were of ill repute, of bad reputation in Jesus' day. Listen to what Matthew writes. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. 
As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Matthew had a decision to make. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. I always find that amazing, that tax collectors and sinners wanted to be with Jesus. The holy son of God and sinners want to be with him. Why? Let's read on. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, now we know why they didn't want to hang out with the Pharisees. Verse 12, but when he heard it, Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. We're all weak. We're all broken. When we're honest, that's who we are. We're sinners. Isn't it amazing that Jesus called Matthew to be his disciple? That he wasn't ashamed to have Matthew as his disciple? Isn't it amazing that Jesus is not ashamed to have Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, in his genealogy? That he would allow for that to be recorded, remembered? Isn't it amazing that Jesus has invited us to follow him? We sinners, he invites us, he welcomes us in. It's amazing. Jesus is God's ultimate gift to us. He is the great gift of the story that God is writing. And when we choose to put our trust in Jesus, when we choose to follow him, when we receive him as Savior and Lord, we are invited into the family of God. We become full sons and daughters. And so, you know, the human labels of honor and dishonor, of of worth and worthlessness, they become meaningless. Meaningless. Because the God of heaven and earth has invited us in. And he's made us his sons and daughters. He gives us our sure identity, which is forever. We are in his family forever. And our lives are filled with purpose. He is shaping us. He is forming us. Paul writes in Ephesians that from before the foundation of the world, he has given us good works to do. He's created us for it. But we can only do those works if we are in Jesus. And so Jesus has come. That's the message of Christmas. Jesus has come. The Father loved us in Jesus. Jesus has revealed the Father's heart to us. And Jesus calls us to know him, to follow him, to discover who he is, why we are here, who we truly are, what his purposes are for us, what his calling is on our our lives. And when we follow Jesus, every moment is filled with purpose and meaning, even the most difficult moments when we wonder what God is doing, when we wonder what the purpose is in the things that we are experiencing, God is sovereign over all things and he is writing his story and we can rest in the Father's love, in his goodness, in his kindness, in his faithfulness. His love is steadfast. Amen? So if you've chosen to follow Jesus, you enter the Christmas season full of joy. As Peter writes, an inexpressible joy. Because you know Jesus. And if you enter the Christmas season and you've never chosen to follow him, he invites you to follow, to know him. So if the Holy Spirit is drawing you to choose Jesus today, then say yes. 
Become a child of God, a son, a daughter of your heavenly Father. Okay? Let's stand for prayer. I'll pray uh, two simple prayers. One, one prayer for those of you who have never made that decision to follow Jesus. So you can pray along with me. And then a prayer for all of us who have already made that decision and are following Jesus. First, for those of you who want to just surrender your hearts to Jesus today, pray this from your heart. Father, thank you for sending Jesus out of love for me. Thank you, Jesus, that you invite me to follow you. I am broken. I am uncertain of where my life is going, but today I really recognize that I need you. And so, Jesus, I invite you into my life. Enter my heart by your Holy Spirit. I ask for forgiveness for my sin. Jesus, I want to turn from my sin. I want to turn from my independent ways, and I want to turn to follow you. And I pray that you would fill my life with your spirit, with purpose, with meaning. Thank you for including me in your family. And I pray, Lord, that I would discover your purposes for my life as I follow you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to be the person that you created me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, then you know you can come forward or go to the I Said Yes banner in the lobby or to the Welcome Center. We'd love to encourage you in your journey. The journey with Jesus is really exciting. Um, A prayer for all of us. Father, many of us have decided to follow you. That's why we're here today worshiping. Thank you, Lord, that you invite us to worship you. That's why we're here today praising your name. That's why we're studying your word. And so we ask, Lord, that uh, we would truly discover who we are in you. Lord, there's always more that you want to teach us. So, Lord, may we discover what it truly means to be your sons and daughters, what it means to be filled with your Holy Spirit, what it means to have a purpose for our lives, for you to have a calling on our lives. So, Lord, we ask that during this Christmas season that might become even more real for us. May we just rejoice in knowing you and belonging to your family, entering into this season celebrating. Lord, fill our hearts with joy and peace and love, and may we radiate your love to those around us, to family and friends. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Maybe some of them are thinking of inviting someone to the Christmas special or to another event. Lord, may they... Be filled with courage and faith. May they know that you go before them and work in the lives of those that you have called them to to love in your name. So, Lord, may we live for your glory. We look forward to uh, these Christmas celebrations. Look forward to what you're going to do. And we surrender ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great weekend. I think Pastor Ron wants to say something.